0: And gentlemen, welcome to a new episode of your law podcast. This is your host, Ozzy. The hand with me, as always, on this program is the one with the knowledge, the one with the power, because knowledge is power. He is Andre Verdun, attorney at law. How you doing this fine evening, Ozzy? I'm doing pretty well. Our, uh, Doing well this morning, in case anybody's listening to this in the morning or (laughs) afternoon. Non-evening time. I'm doing fine all the time. How are
1: you? Doing well. Doing well. Ozzy, do you listen to your podcast in the morning or in the afternoon? Or are Mm -hmm. you like an all-day podcast listener?
0: Well, it's more when it's in regards to fantasy football. It would be as early as when I'd wake up. And of course, that was in season when it was going on. Uh, Those would be like my morning podcasts. And then there'd be just whatever afterward okay. i'm i'm fine with whatever afterward but even in the off season i can't help but listen to stupid fantasy football podcasts now cuz i'm um unhealthily addicted but at, at least it's just a stupid game <laughs> anyway that's not what this podcast is about this podcast is about law and how it pertains to you and we did have an episode that talked about renter's rights so we are trying to reach as many people as possible and we're just going to help out the landlords in this case. Also, be good for tenants to know what rights the landlords do have just in case any shifty things happen. And we'll be going over that today. Now, this was spawned due to a question that we had received sent to yourlawpod at gmail.com. I'm going to paraphrase this question, but basically, it's, it's a landlord that's concerned about renting units to a Spanish speaking tenant that might not understand everything that's in the lease agreement so then they asked is what can I do to provide a bilingual lease agreement but I'd want to make sure that what I understand is what would protect me in court and so with this information Andre did what he does best and he put together a neat little outline that we get to go over today talking about this very issue and some other information
1: as well you know the first thing I have to say my my hat's off to the person who sent in the letter, because so often I'm dealing with the bad landlords, the ones that kind of don't want the tenant to know what's going on. And there's certainly a lot of unsung, really good landlords out there that try really hard to provide more than just what's required under the law to have their tenants in a comfortable living, uh, living space. And this is an example of that. You know, this landlord wants to create a document so that while he doesn't primarily speak Spanish, he can look at it and understand what his rights and obligations are under the contract. And his tenants can also look at the contract and understand what their rights and obligations are. So, one thing you should understand is that in the United States, there's no obligation that a contract be in a specific language. You know, some countries have laws that say that yeah, in order for a contract to be valid, it must be written in a specific language. In the United States, in California specifically, where I practice, there is no obligation that a contract has to be in English to be valid or in Spanish to be valid. Or in, so essentially, a, a contract can be in any language. Now, there are requirements that if a document is not in English, in order for the court to consider it, it has to be translated by a certified translator So if the contract is not in English, there could in theory be some additional cost incurred in litigating the terms of such a contract in court. But the one thing I want to say at the outset is a contract does not have to be in English in order to be enforceable. Under contract law, the only thing that has to happen is there has to be a mutual understanding of what the obligations are. And in fact, we litigate cases here where... Not just in the landlord tenant realm, but like in the employer realm. I got a case right now where a employer had an employee sign a document. This was actually just a couple of months ago, where the document was written in English, which is the language that the employer spoke, but the employee spoke no English and he was told just to sign it. And he did sign it and the document stated that the employee was resigning his job voluntarily because there was no work and that he had agreed that he had accepted his last paycheck. And the employer then said that he didn't know what the statement meant. He thought that it was just him agreeing that he was going to go home and wait for him to be called until there's more work available, but never was paid his last paycheck and never knew that was, he did not understand that that's what he was signing when he signed the document. So, that could be a, a valid defense if the employer could show that because of an intentional conduct taken on by the other contracting party, that he didn't understand, so there was no mutual understanding of the terms of the agreement. So this is how I would recommend a landlord or any person in the, the, the same situation to resolve this issue. And in fact, not only would it possibly... Protect the person who is signing the contract, but it would also protect the person who is trying to enforce the contract. For example, in the case that I have now, had the employer done what I'm about to suggest, certainly wouldn't be any dispute about what the employee did or did not understand when he signed the agreement. So, what I would recommend is write up the contract in English the way that you want to offer the terms of the rental. And then have somebody who either does this professionally. I I, I would recommend someone that does it professionally in the legal industry. There's uh, numerous uh, legal translators out there. They usually charge about 50 US dollars per hour. I would recommend that the translator translate each paragraph one at a time. So when the documents return to you, paragraph one would be in English. But directly below paragraph one would be the same paragraph in Spanish and italicized. So what you would end up having is, say that there was a lease agreement with 20 paragraphs in it. Paragraph one would first be written in English and then in Spanish. Second paragraph would be written in English and then in Spanish. And I would italicize the Spanish clauses to quickly differentiate them from the clauses that are written in English. However, landlords, I'm going to give you a tip here. I recommend that the last paragraph state that the translations are being provided in order to aid the reader in understanding the terms of the agreement. But if there is some type of ambiguity between what the English clause states and what the Spanish clause states, so if those could be, in, if the Spanish clause and the English clause do not agree for some reason based on the translation, the last clause should say, If there is a disagreement, the English provisions control. Therefore, if there's a particular paragraph that's important to you, or if you do not feel comfortable in relying on the translation provided, seek a translation from your own resources or seek legal counsel. And the reason for that is, is the landlord doesn't want to be in a position where they're relying only on the English translations. And that, you know, because, Ozzy, you're bilingual, so you probably understand that. In most cases, you could understand the translations that are being made, but sometimes, depending on how words are translated or the dual meanings of words, and sometimes a word has only one meaning in English and dual meanings in another language. So that could create some ambiguity. No matter how careful you are, that could create ambiguity. So if I could just
0: call back to my six-year-old self, I would... My six-year-old self would want to just yell out, "Just understand that P H makes an F sound for phone." Just to give you an idea, I mean, because I mean, I don't want to get too much into detail, but as a young child learning English, I had a hard time with that. <laughs> but after the fact, I don't even give it a second thought. But just understand, like, to someone who's you know conquering English for the first time, seeing that is already wait, what is this stuff? So the rest of English can be quite challenging at times from that perspective.
1: Yeah, it, it is. And actually, I've been trying to study Spanish the last couple of years. And one thing I appreciate about Spanish is phonetically, it never changes. And I never even thought about the fact that my phone should be called a pone. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Never even crossed my mind. And there's, you know, the other sense that a word, one example is in English, we will say, like, do you take, did you take a pill if you have a headache? Where people I talk to in Spanish will usually say, do you drink a pill? And I always thought that was weird. And what's more weird about that is in Spanish, the word taken to drink are the same, right? Tomad. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I'd be concerned about is if you translated a word from English to Spanish, and then in Spanish, that word actually had two meanings, and that can create a confusion. You want to make sure that your contract specifies that it's the English translation that would override if there was a confusion about the meaning of a word or, or a sentence. And I think that that would probably likely not arise, but it would definitely be very important for the landlord to protect themselves. If they went through this effort of creating a a bilingual document so that they can ensure that they're not penalized by their efforts because of an ambiguous uh, translation. So, to summarize, have a professional translator, someone that has experience in legal translations, do a translation from English to Spanish. I would recommend it be a paragraph by paragraph translation, the document you provide to your tenant. And at the end, Specify that if there's any ambiguity between the paragraph provided in English versus the paragraph provided in Spanish, that the English paragraph will control. So, again, if there's a particular paragraph that's important to you, you may want to seek some additional assistance in making sure that the English paragraph clearly represents what the tenant wants, or if the tenant doesn't feel comfortable relying on the translation provided to seek their own translations. I think if a landlord did that, They'd be well-protected, and also it would be a stand-up thing for a landlord to do to ensure that when they had an issue, hopefully a small minor issue with the tenant, they could both pull out the contract or refer to the paragraph at issue and both try to resolve that issue informally.
0: Right, and hats off to the landlord who's trying to, you know, do things the right way. As you said, your experience, you deal with landlords that act the opposite way. so. I'm at least appreciative that there's people like this out there,
1: and I am too. And my hat's off as well.
0: And just a note for that last uh, paragraph that you mentioned, where you said it's always safe to have your, you know, yourself protected in this case, and you never know what could happen. No one thought the winter storm that happened in Texas would happen, and there they are. So it's best yeah. to be prepared. It is. It is. So today, so rather on this week's episode. We're going to go into some, while we answer that question, we are going to go into some items that cannot be changed by a contract. Now, this delves into what you've experienced personally, what you've seen. So, here are some things that, just a word to the wise, any landlords, potential landlords in the future. Here are a couple of things we're going to t- discuss that cannot be changed by contract. First, California Civil Code subsection 1942.1 states that, quote, any agreement by a leasee of a dwelling waiving or modifying his or her rights under section nineteen forty-one or nineteen forty-two shall be void as contrary to public policy with respect to any condition which renders the premises untenable.
1: This this language uh, that a clause shall be void as contrary to public policy is something that we encounter a lot in tenant law. And even more, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this in the future, in consumer protection laws. And so what that language means, void as contrary to public policy. If you go back to common law contract law, even if there isn't a statute that says it, courts have the ability to look at a clause in a contract and find that it is so one-sided or so unfair as to one of the parties that to enforce it would be a violation of their public policy obligations. And they can void them. And so what the legislator now does is when there's particular language that they don't want the parties to be able to change by contract, and usually that's because the legislator is trying to protect a disadvantaged person. And typically in the landlord-tenant realm, it's the tenant that's considered disadvantaged. But because the, the legislator wants to protect certain obligations that a landlord has to a tenant, they will prohibit any effort to change those protections by contracting them away in the lease agreement. So we start today with 1941 and 1942, and we won't get into the specifics of those. If a landlord wants to know what their obligations are under those two statutes, they can certainly pull them up. And you know, I, I would hope that there's no landlord that's accepting rent money that doesn't know their obligations under those two code sections, because those deal with the Minimum requirements of habitability, the fact that you have to have running water in a home. And the fact that every.
0: Sorry to cut you off. I was just going to say that I'll go ahead and leave links to these specific sections in the description, just in case anybody. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, thank you for doing that. So, those requirements will require running water, including hot running water. You cannot rent a home in California that doesn't have hot running water. Every home in California has to have central heat. Air Central air conditioning is not typically required. There can be an exception if you live in an extremely hot environment. The electricity outlets must be in good working order. I just had a case last week, uh, or someone contacted me last week, about they were having issues with the electricity in this home for many months, and then, unfortunately, her son plugged in a heater, and the socket blew up and burnt his hand, so... That particular landlord is going to have an issue with their failure to comply with their minimum obligations under 1941 and 42. So the long and short of it is you can't say, well, we agree that I don't have to provide you hot water or we, we, you, we agree that I don't have to provide safe electrical outlets in the home. The legislator will, has prohibited landlords from contracting those protections away. So in addition to um, the language in 1942.1 that prohibits a landlord from contracting away these habitability issues, there's another statute that has five different categories of rights that a landlord cannot contract away through the lease agreement.
0: That referring to California Civil Code Section 1953, which states, quote, any provisions of a lease or rental agreement that of a dwelling by which the lessee agrees to modify or waive any of the following rights shall be void as contrary to public policy. So we're going to go over these five, one by one, break each one down. For the first one, states his or her rights or remedies under section 1950.5 or 1954. Now 1950.5 delves into security deposit rights and we actually covered this in episode 10 that is available and you are able to listen to right now. 1954 prohibits non-emergency entries by a landlord into your rental unit without 24 hours notice and makes entries into a tenant's
1: home without cause illegal. So 1954 deals with when a landlord rents a home to a tenant while the landlord maintains ownership of the home they no longer have possession of the home and this is sometimes uh, uh, this is a concept that sometimes landlords have a really difficult time with because I've dealt with a lot of issues where landlords think that they can come and go as they please into a home they own even though they've rented that home to a tenant So there's the situation where in case of non-emergency inspections, that could be to do maintenance on the home or to do the, the landlord just wants to inspect the home to see if it's being taken care of. They can do that with 24 hours notice. They can enter with less than 24 hours notice if there's an emergency, which usually has to be like a gas leak or a water break, but there's also a broader purpose of 1954, which Allows a tenant to be the sole possessory of a rented home, which is superior to that of the landlords. So you cannot say to a tenant, I understand that you're renting the home, but if I want to walk in the front door to make sure that you're not doing anything illegal or anything that's against the tenant rules, or if I just want to walk in to enjoy my kitchen or my den. Those types of provisions would be outlawed under California Civil Code Section 1953.
0: Now, moving on to the second part, which states his or her right to assert a cause of action against the lessor, which may arise in the future.
1: Yeah, so that's pretty self-explanatory. Essentially, what you're not permitted to do as a landlord is say, you agree that you can't sue me for any reason while you're the tenant of my home. So, uh, and, and this could be related to the habitability issues we talked about. So you can't say you agree that if I don't provide you the habitability obligations under 1941 and 1942 that you can't sue me, or if I breach your quiet enjoyment, or if I trespass. And, and actually, this, is, this concept exists beyond just the landlord-tenant provision, but you cannot sign away your future rights to sue somebody if something happens in the future. You can contract away your rights to sue somebody for a thing that happened in the past, even if you don't know about it, but it's a pretty broad notion in law that you can't agree not to sue someone for something that might happen in the future, and this is, that's totally prohibited in the landlord-tenant realm as well.
0: I'm, I'm laughing in my head because I just keep thinking about an episode of The Simpsons where you have Bart swinging his arms forward. I'm going to keep swinging my arms forward, and if you get hit, that ain't my fault. At least it's like, well, I'm going to start kicking, and if you get in my way, it's not my fault. Just, that's all I, was on repeat in my head as we were talking about that second part. But moving on to the third, that is his or her right to a notice or hearing required by law. Also pretty self-explanatory.
1: Yeah, and I'll just put that in the context of which we usually see it. The law requires that if somebody fails to pay their rent on time. That they're entitled to a three-day notice to either pay or quit. You cannot waive those rights away. If there's any other notice that's required, for example, there's a minor violation in the lease agreement, like you're not supposed to park your car in the driveway for some reason, and a tenant does, that would be considered a minor violation. In order for the landlord to act on that, they would have to give them a 30-day notice to fix the issue or terminate the lease. The Landlord can't say for any minor violations, I'm not required to give you notice before I terminate the lease because the law requires that.
0: Gotcha. Next up, number four his or her procedural rights in litigation in any action involving his or her rights and obligations as a tenant.
1: This is probably the most consequential of the provisions. And of course, it's the one that kind of sounds the most vague and ambiguous. This subsection has been interpreted to mean that you cannot put an arbitration agreement in a landlord-tenant lease agreement. An arbitration would be basically if you hire a private mediator type person. It's not a mediator. It could be a judge. It could be a person that works as a mediator. But you would hire a private person to act as the judge and to decide the outcome of a litigation. And nearly all those scenarios, you would forfeit your right to a trial by jury. So what subsection four means is that a landlord cannot take away from a tenant the right to file a lawsuit in a court cannot take away their right to a jury trial and cannot force them into an arbitration setting now there is another provision of law in the federal realm called the federal arbitration act that states that states cannot interfere with a contracting party's rights to arbitrate i'm not aware of any cases that's applied to this statute. But as of now, it's pretty clear that the California courts will not allow landlords to take away tenants' rights to file lawsuits in courts and have a jury decide these disputes.
0: And the last on this list is five, his or her right to have the landlord exercise a duty of care to prevent personal injury or personal property damage where that duty is imposed by law.
1: So this is similar to the second provision that says that a landlord can't require a tenant to contract away the tenant's right to sue the landlord if they break any type of law or legal obligation. What subsection 5 specifically refers to, though, is the landlord's duty to exercise reasonable care, which is another way of saying if a landlord is negligent in how they upkeep their property, and a landlord is injured, the landlord cannot escape liability in a negligence cause of action by saying, Well, you agreed in the contract that I'm not required to exercise a duty of care to you. A duty of care is one of the elements of negligence law. Any lawsuit can recite those elements. The negligence requires a duty, a breach of that duty, that that breach causes damages, and then, of course, damage. So, duty, breach of duty, causation, and damages. Uh, What a landlord could try to do is say, we agree under contract, I have no duty of care to prevent harm to you and your family. And if there was no duty under the contract, then in theory, that would eliminate any ability for the tenant to sue the landlord for negligence. And what the law says is, we're not going to allow you to do that, that's prohibited. And therefore, if you do breach a duty of care to your tenant, they can sue you whether they agree to prior to that not to sue you. So it's like I said, it's very similar to subsection two, but it, it's directed solely at a negligence cause of action. So that concludes the five rights that a landlord cannot take away from a tenant through contract. There's one other issue that I often see from time to time, and this is usually from tenants that don't hire lawyers or don't use a California-specific lease agreement. And this is probably one of the mistakes that cause landlords the greatest harm. And when I mean the greatest harm, I mean the greatest financial harm. And that is when they attempt to put a, what we call a one-way attorney's fees provision in a lease agreement. And the way that they typically find these is that they go on the internet and they download a lease that may be rent for another state or that some other person wrote that was intended to protect the landlord but not the tenant. And it'll say something to the effect of, if a lawsuit is brought by a landlord against a tenant for any violation of the lease or any cause of action arising under the lease, the landlord is entitled to attorney's fees and costs. However, a tenant is not. And so California has a specific code section that addresses these types of contract clauses.
0: And that section being 1717 of the California Code of Civil Procedure. That provides quote in any action on a contract where the contract specifically provides that attorney's fees and costs which are incurred to enforce the contract shall be awarded either to one of the parties or to the prevailing party then the party who is determined to be the party prevailing on the contract whether he or she is the party specified in the contract or not shall be entitled to reasonable attorney's fees in addition to other costs.
1: So again, if a landlord tries to put a clause in a contract that says that the landlord and not the tenant can incur attorney's fees and costs if they prevail in any civil action, California law under section 1717 will apply that statute to any lawsuit to enforce the contract regardless of which party is bringing the lawsuit. So well, sometimes what happens is a tenant will call me and will complain of some type of legal wrong and then I'll agree and bring the lawsuit and the landlord may contact me to try to resolve the case and then I'll tell them that any resolution will require that they pay all of my clients' attorney's fees. They will then state it's their understanding that in a civil lawsuit that each party has to bear their own attorney's fees and then I will inform them that that's true, but because there's an attorney's fees provision of the contract, my client's entitled to the fees. They will then, of course, reply by saying that that contract only awards them attorney's fees if they sue and prevail in an action. And then I'll have to direct them to the 1717 of the California Code of Civil Procedure and tell them that because they put this one-way attorney's fees provision in the contract, that they now are required to pay the attorney's fees to my client. So I want to put that out there because if a landlord does not want to be on the hook for attorney's fees, if they're sued, typically they're not responsible for those attorney's fees because under the American rule, if somebody brings a lawsuit, each party is required to pay their own attorney's fees regardless of the outcome of the case. But if you put that provision in there thinking that, oh, well, I'm going to get my attorney's fees if I sue, but I'm not going to let my tenant get those fees, it's not going to be applied that way. Another thing you should be aware of, especially if you have an attorney's fees provision in your lease agreement, is if you put any of these clauses in your contract, and when I mean contract, I'm saying your lease agreement, and the tenant decides to bring what they call a declaratory relief action. And a declaratory relief action is when somebody files a lawsuit, you're not asking for a jury trial. You're not even asking for a lengthy litigation. You're just asking for the judge to look at the contract and declare whether or not a paragraph, or the contract as a whole is void because of some legal defect. So if you put any of these provisions in your lease and a tenant brings a declaratory relief action to say, Your Honor, the landlord can't waive my rights to a habitable dwelling under 1941 and 42 of the Civil Code, or they can't waive my rights to get my security deposit under 1950.5, the judge will almost... Undoubtedly agree with that, and the tenant will win the declaratory relief action. Now, if you're a landlord over multiple dwellings, they may be able to get attorney's fees if they seek to have those provisions stricken in all the contracts under the Attorney General Private Right of Action Clause, which could give a plaintiff who brings a lawsuit for the benefit of the public attorney's fees. Or if there's an attorney's fee provision, they don't even need to go that far. They just have to win the declaratory relief action and they're going to get their rights to attorney's fees. So there is a greater risk of putting these illegal provisions in your contract beyond just having them not be enforceable. You could actually have a tenant or a consumer attorney bring an action to invalidate those clauses and possibly require you to pay their attorney's fees for doing so. So I think this is a really good opportunity for us to kind of talk to landlords and tell them some of the things that a tenant lawyer sees happen from time to time. Because everything we talked about here, I have come across as a tenant lawyer. And all of these issues are issues that I have litigated successfully on behalf of tenants. And you know, oftentimes when you're talking about the uh, landlord that only owns one or two dwelling houses, they typically like to do a lot of these things on their own. And so this is an opportunity for us to talk to them about some of the major pitfalls that I see as a tenant lawyer. So hopefully they can avoid those and not become susceptible to a lawsuit and and hopefully have a better relationship with their tenants in the process.
0: Right. And and something else you mentioned before, when we were talking about this before we started recording, were attorney caps.
1: Yes. Attorney fee caps are something that I see in leases a lot now. And these are provisions that say that if there's litigation brought between the parties, the prevailing party is entitled to attorney's fees, but they're capped at, and then it's a specific amount. It could be like $800, $1,500. It's usually a pretty low amount. And landlords do this because landlords typically sue tenants more often than tenants sue landlords. And when a landlord sues a tenant, it's typically because they're trying to evict a non-paying tenant from their home. So they'll put these attorney fee caps in there so that in the frequent occasion in which they're trying to evict somebody, they can still get an award for attorney's fees. But then if there's a more uh, length, because usually the litig- if there's a litigation by a tenant, they're usually not just a short one or two hearing expedited process like a unlawful detainer action is, they're usually protracted litigation. So those are the type of cases that the prevailing party might get tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees. So they put these fee caps in there to keep the exposure of attorney's fees low so that in the frequent actions that are brought by landlords, they're able to recover their attorney's fees. But if the tenant sues a landlord, their liability is only $800 or $1,000 or $2,000. These fee caps are legal in the few times that I have seen them challenged. I could see a circumstance in the future where I would be arguing that a fee cap should be voided, just the cap portion of it, and my client should be entitled to full attorney fees because of the one-way nature of how these fee caps are written. But there's only one case that I'm aware of at the appellate level that's interpreted these fee caps, and they have enforced them. And you know, I think that's right. It's probably right. It's probably right that while under 1717, a an attorney fees provision has to be enforceable by either party. I don't see any legal reason why the parties can't also say, while we want the prevailing party to get attorney's fees, we want to cap that at a certain dollar amount. Even if that cap favors landlords. And I think it does. So if a landlord's looking at putting an attorney's fees provision in their lease agreement, to my own frustration, you may want to look at putting a fee cap on there so that you limit your liability.
0: So is there any particular threshold? Because at the very tail end of Section 1717, states shall be entitled to reasonable attorney's fees in addition to other costs. Is there a particular number that's defined as reasonable and
1: unreasonable? Like, is there a threshold there? Usually it's the courts that will have to determine what the reasonable amount of attorney's fees are. And typically when the courts are asked to determine that, and I have a lot of different cases in which I've had to ask the court to determine my reasonable rate of attorney's fees in both state and federal court, they use this, what they call the Lodestar method. And the loadstar method tells the judge that they should multiply the number of hours that the attorney reasonably spent litigating a case by the reasonable prevailing rate for that attorney in the market in which the case was litigated in. And then once they have done that math, to look at the amount that they come to and determine if based on the litigation of that case, whether that amount is appropriate based on the uh, results achieved by the plaintiff, et cetera. So the last time that I had a judge determine what my reasonable hourly rate is, the judge agreed that my reasonable rate was $450 an hour. And in that particular case, I think that we litigated about 135 hours. So you can see that uh, it doesn't take much for attorney's fees to exceed $100,000 in time. So to answer your question more specifically, there is no specific amount. It really depends on the circumstances. It depends on whether or not the case was resolved quickly or resolved after some discovery, or if the case resolved, after a jury trial, it's probably very unlikely for a case to go from lawsuit through discovery to a trial and not exceed $100,000 because most lawyers on the low end are going to be demanding at least about 250 an hour here in California, and a more experienced lawyer uh, can get quite pricey. So it just depends on the, the litigation. Whereas if you're looking for an unlawful detainer action, those are summary proceedings And they're usually resolved in one hearing. So if you are looking at a a landlord tenant lawyer who's getting paid three or four hundred bucks an hour, even at that rate, I wouldn't expect that they would have more than three or four hours of litigation time into a case, unless the tenant challenged the action and demanded a jury trial. Then you know it could be a, a lot more. So reasonable attorneys' fees is typically the market rate for an attorney's time times the number of hours they reasonably spent on a case in order to achieve a prevailing outcome.
0: Well, I guess the, what made me ask that question was, and I'm guessing this hasn't been the case, but, I mean, you, you threw out examples like, oh, uh, they could be capped at $800 to, or $1,000, and then you just said, you gave an example of how you were easily over 100000 So ha- has there been a case, in your experience, where the cap is not reasonable based on the outcome of uh, the amount of work the attorney needed to put in.
1: I mean, typically when I see an attorney's fees cap in a lease, the amount of time reasonably for me to work on that case exceeds the cap before I file a lawsuit. Because typically when I'm doing a habitability case, my lawsuit complaints are 20, 30 pages long. And so for me to gather that information, interviewing my clients, interviewing other witnesses, looking at documents, looking at photos, maybe having my investigator go out there and survey the property, gather all that up, put it into a lawsuit complaint, that's going to exceed $800, $1,500, $2,500. I don't think I've ever seen a cap more than $2,500. So there's no possible way in which an attorney in a a tenant habitability or a security deposit case will ever get their work done anywhere near within what the cap provides. But that's the point of the cap is it states no matter how much time that you put into a case, you're only entitled to a specific amount, which is why if I end up litigating a case with an attorney's fees cap to trial, I could very well see myself making the argument that the cap should be void due to public policy concerns, because of the fact that it only benefits tenants. Tenants can get 100% or close to 100% of their attorney's fees back each and every time they evict somebody. You mean landlords. I'm sorry, landlords could do that each and every time they evict somebody, but tenants are almost never going to be able to incur their attorney's fees by bringing causes of action for the landlord's violation of the lease agreement or of their statutory obligations to the tenant. So I could definitely see me challenging that in the future because I do think that there's an argument to be made there, that they're not Mm. fair. But I go back to what I said before. The only case that I've seen when I researched it was out of the LA County Superior Court and that appellate division upheld the fee caps as being, in fact, in that case, the trial court struck the fee cap and said the fee cap did violate public policy and gave the tenant their full hourly rate, and it was over 100 grand. And then the Court of Appeals reversed the trial court and said that that fee cap was a validly bargained for exchange provision in the contract, not void of public policy, and reinstated the attorney's fees cap. Also, landlords should be aware that some of these statutory provisions that talk about a landlord's rights, limits their rights to enter a home without the consent of the Tenant, if those things are being done to annoy or harass the tenant or to make them leave the property, or if you're engaged in an illegal lockout, or if there's a habitability issue complained up to the code enforcement agency of the county or city, and those things aren't resolved within 35 days, there's different statutes that sometimes provide for attorney's fees as a matter of statutory law. And so if you have a statutory right to attorney's fees, those will not be capped by the fee cap provision in the contract. The fee cap can only cap attorney's fees awarded under the contract based on the provisions of the contract. So there are, I think in these situations in which we took cases beyond, not to trial, but you know, beyond discovery, we were claiming attorney's fees based on provisions that were beyond just what the contract would say. But like I said, uh, you know, if there's a change in that, I'll probably come talk about it because it'll either be me going to the appellate courts and challenging a fee cap and losing or me going to the appellates courts and challenging a fee cap and winning. I certainly will fight that fight if we ever get there. but I you know trying to give the landlords some advice here from a starting point, don't try to rely on a one way fee provision, and as of now, fee caps have been held enforceable, so You can rely on that, but also know that there's people like me out there trying to change that. So we'll have to wait and see how that pans out.
0: And there are people like you providing this information to the masses, which is what this podcast is intended for. And next week, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be back with a new episode, which has been inspired by a question that was sent into yourlawpod at gmail.com. That'll be next week. But if you have any questions that you'd like us to, answer and discuss on this program, you go ahead and send an email to yourlawpod at gmail.com. Once again, yourlawpod at gmail.com. And in terms of contact information for the law office of Andre Verdun, you can send an email to office at verdunlaw.com or visit the Facebook page at facebook.com slash verdunlaw. You can also visit the Facebook page of Your Law Podcast, this very show on Facebook as well, and give it a like. This concludes this week's episode, and we will be back with a new episode, as aforementioned, with a question that was asked, sent to the email, yourlawpod at gmail.com. Andre, anything else you'd like to say before we head out for the week?
1: Wear mask, stay safe, and uh, if it keeps getting hot, I'm going to (laughs) say be careful of that heat wave coming.
0: Let's 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 not get carried away. This is Southern California. It's <laughs> wine. Somebody, I, I overheard somebody say, "Oh, we've reached summer." I was like, "No, wait till next week." <laughs> I, I I swear, I saw projection for rain this this coming week. So uh, let's hope nothing is let's hope. written in stone. Especially with how crazy things are in terms of weather. I'm not,
1: you know, I'm not banking on anything. So we'll see what well, happens. Well, California needs some rain, so hopefully it brings some. Yeah,
0: hopefully, but we will be back again next week with a new episode. He is California Attorney at Law Andre Verdun, and I'm Ozzy V, and we'll see you next week right here on your Law Podcast.